When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'm talking to Howard Phillips Smith about A Sojourn in Paradise. Jack Robinson in 1950s New Orleans, which was published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2020. In this study of Jack Robinson and his photography, Howard Phillips Smith takes an in-depth look at Robinson's early life in New Orleans, where he discovered his passion for painting, photography, and the Dixie Bohemian life of the French Quarter. The book features more than 100 photographs taken by the artist's accompanied by detailed commentary about Robinson's life in New Orleans and excerpts from interviews with the people who knew him when he lived there. Raised on a small farm in rural southern Mississippi, Howard Philip Smith obtained multiple degrees in history, French, and German. A Fulbright scholarship in 1977 took him to France, where he studied French literature and taught English in a French lycée in Bordeaux. After living in New Orleans during the 1980s, Smith moved to Los Angeles and completed his novel, The Cult of the Mask, based on the gay community in New Orleans before the onslaught of AIDS. He is also the author of Unveiling the Muse, The Lost History of Gay Carnival in New Orleans, and Southern Decadence in New Orleans. This is my third interview with Howard, and I'll leave a link to the other two about the books I just mentioned and the text that will accompany this interview on the NBN website. Howard, welcome back to the New Books Network. Hello, good to be here. I feel like you are creating a multiverse of the New Orleans bohemian scene. Some of the characters here appear in your other works, uh, but you tell very different stories in each of your books. But tell us how this book, this particular book came about, or as I like to say it here, tell us your book's origin story. Well, I think this book um, just forced itself uh, into being because the material is so interesting. Think of uh, Sojourn as the precursor to the uh, 
Gay Carnival in New Orleans book, The Unveiling the Muse. Uh, while I was writing the Carnival book, I kept grappling with how did the first cruise begin? How did they form? What was the atmosphere like in the city? And, you know, really, how could this happen uh, in the 50s? Because the 50s were so, um, you know, reviled in a way, uh, uh, especially with the LGBT. Q community. Uh, there was a series of photographs that I stumbled upon that sort of documented the French Quarter during the uh, early 1950s. And there are a few of those photographs in my carnival book. But as I delved further into it, I discovered that there were many, many photographs that explored French Quarter life during the uh, late 40s, early 50s by Jack Robinson. And um, there is an archive of his material in Memphis, so I kept working with them, and we decided to put uh, to put uh, a lot of his work together. A hundred plates is in the Sojourn book, but my publisher didn't want just just a, a photo book. We needed context, and I was you know I was more than happy to supply uh, what was happening around uh, these books. I mean these photographs. So that's that's how the book came about. Yeah, as you say, what what fascinates me here is that these images just they paint such a different picture from what we conventionally uh, people conventionally imagine as the 1950s U.S. And to me, the most interesting thing is how public uh, everything. Well, most of this is many of the photos that you show here. We're not looking at queer people in private spaces, right? Some there's a lot of street uh, images in the street. And we'll talk about the role of carnival in all this in, in, in a bit. Right. That's important. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I, we, of course, discussed this in our previous interviews. But for the folks who may not have a, uh, had a chance to listen to them yet, can you paint us a picture of gay life in New Orleans in the late 40s and 50s? And, of course, the importance of Mardi Gras, this means to, as you say here, channel queer energy. Yes. Um, let's focus on the French Quarter because that's really where uh, things started to happen. The French Quarter is, uh, has always been a unique place um, in New Orleans. It's where the Bohemians tended to congregate. It was rather run down in the 40s and 50s. You have um, people like Tennessee Williams. You have... Uh, Truman Capote, who come to New Orleans and they uh, live in the French Quarter for a while and they experience um, the uh, artistic scene there, the sort of openness. And, you know, it, it fluctuated. There were times when the police tried to suppress bars and uh, things like that in the French Quarter, but more often than not, it was just left alone, uh, let's say. And I, I think, um, so you have this setting, especially after World War II, when people are moving around. People had moved uh, from farms. You know, the United States was mostly a farm uh, country uh, before World War II. But people uh, left the farm to serve in the army, uh, etc. in World War II. So they got to experience big city life. And especially for the closeted gay 
uh, population at that time, they liked what they saw. They saw gay bars that were, uh, you know, under the radar. So you have this influx into the French Quarter of New Orleans of, you know, a very diverse uh, section of people. And what happened with the carnival traditions, the Mardi Gras traditions, is that uh, you really couldn't be on the street in a costume during the year. But on Mardi Gras Day, the law allowed everyone to be in costume, no matter what. So this was sort of a loophole for gay men who wanted to be in drag, especially. So it could be a costume, it could be drag, it could be anything. It was more or less accepted. The police weren't going to arrest you because you had a, uh, a dress on on Mardi Gras Day. So this was... Um, this was a way for one day of the year for the gay culture, for gay culture in, in uh, the French Quarter, especially to uh, be very expressive. And, you know, they just let out all of their pent up energy from, you know, from the year. Uh, and, and this, I feel very strongly about this. This was sort of the impetus for the first cruise because uh, there were private costume parties during the, the carnival season. And so these segued into the first cruise. I'm, I'm sure uh, at a party, at a costume party, someone said, oh, I'm the crew of, you know, of X and just making a joke out of it. And then the queen was presented like a drag queen was presented as the queen of the crew. And this really uh, was something that they took up very seriously after that. So, but if anybody wants to know a little bit more about uh, the history of gay Mardi Gras in New Orleans, check out our interview about uh, Howard's other book, Unveiling the Muse. Um, you talk about Robinson's time in New Orleans, and, and uh, when you talk about his documentation of that period, you, um, this is a section you call a vortex of history. And I really like that expression. Could you tell us what you mean by that? Sure. There's so many uh, vortex, uh, I think, is apt because there's so many things that were going on at that time. Uh, society was changing. There was this, um, you know, sense that um, women's roles had been very, uh, had changed during the war where women were uh, working in munitions factories, but then they were back in the homes. And so there was this, this kind of, uh, back and forth, uh, with all of these, uh, feelings and like, how, who are you? What can you be? Um, and in new Orleans, I think, um, that really came out, um, in, in the French court, there was an, a group of artists who started during this time, and they were very bohemian and uh, were exploring new ways to express themselves visually. Um, you have artists like Dusty Bonger, you have artists like George Dunbar, you have um, George Durow later on, uh, who was a queer artist. And I think Jack Robinson was just very sensitive to this. He was exploring using the camera. You know, he became a very famous fashion photographer later in the 60s and early 70s. He worked with Vogue magazine. But during this time, he was just um, just learning his craft. And, you know, right, right from the beginning, he really had an eye for framing uh, different situations and capturing different situations. He worked on Canal Street as a graphic designer for a while. Uh, and he had his camera with him everywhere. There are some photos of Canal Street, uh, which is the main uh, main street uh, uh, in New Orleans, adjacent to the French Quarter. 
Uh, he photographed in the French Quarter. He photographed on Bourbon Street. He was just uh, very open to exploring everything that he saw. And um, it was really a unique... And of course, he was friends with all of these artists. He studied uh, painting and drawing himself. So he was very much a part of this subterranean culture at the time. And while the book is about New Orleans, you also provide a larger panorama of uh, Robinson's life. So can you tell us a bit about his New York phase and his work in high fashion and celebrity photographs? Um, you only have a few of them in the book, but I can see just from that that he photographed everyone, right? He was very sought after. Uh, let me tell you, he um, he and his uh, uh, partner, uh, Gabriel, who was from Ecuador, uh, they both moved to New York in about 1955. But this was uh, something uh, he wanted to explore photography, uh, fashion photography in New York. And his friends urged him to, uh, to go there. And he made uh, some significant connections before he even went. Uh, Dusty Banger's uh, friend, Betty Parsons, who had a really important uh, contemporary art gallery in Manhattan, was a friend of his and really helped him to get going. He was in New York maybe four years, and he landed a cover, um, you know, on a on a very important magazine, Life magazine. So he uh, worked with Kerry Donovan, and then Kerry Donovan introduced him to Deanna Vreeland at Vogue, and uh, you know, he photographed a lot of um, fashion shots for for Vogue, but he also had his own his own studio, which uh, you know, uh, celebrities, uh, artists. Uh, actors and actresses would come um, to his studio to be photographed. Um, uh, He also was part of the Andy Warhol entourage as well. So he was very well connected in New York and he was, uh, you know, uh, very successful, except he left New York in uh, 72. By the way, uh, Deanna Vreeland had been fired uh, as editor of Vogue. And I think that partially affected him because he was very close with her. Uh, but he left uh, New York in, in 1972 and moved to Memphis, where his uh, family had settled. And his mother was ill. He moved back on the pretext of, of helping her. But he was really exhausted. He uh, uh, was very prone to drinking and possibly drugs. And he was just burnt out, is, is my impression. Now, Gabriel had died unexpectedly unexpectedly at this time. So I'm sure he felt alone and just wanted to get out. He moved to Memphis. He changed his career. He never picked up the camera again, really. And that was in 72. He died in you know the late 90s. So he spent a quarter of his life not taking photographs, you know. So very odd story. He passed away and his boss, where he worked, he worked in a stained stained glass studio. Uh, in Memphis, uh, had no idea that he had been such a famous photographer. But Robinson left him, his name is Dan Oppenheimer, left him his um, archive of negatives uh, and, and photographs, which, you know, are in the hundreds of thousands. And this is why we know about him today, because of this uh, archive in Memphis. Tell us a bit more about this process of recovery or rediscovery of his work, because as you said, he dies uh, relatively unknown. Uh, how, 
I, I know Dan Oppenheimer kept his photos, but how did we get to, you know, this process of re- rediscovery of his work? Well, um, even though Jack Robinson didn't really do anything with his, his, uh, his archive when he was alive, he did um, want uh, Dan Oppenheimer to create an archive to publish books if he could. Uh, I think Robinson wanted, I think he knew that he had a, had a legacy. Uh, possibly he was thinking more of his fashion work. But Dan Oppenheimer wanted to, in his archive, wanted to not only explore the fashion part of it, but uh, they discovered a lot of uh, images from New Orleans, which um, they produced an exhibit at Newcomb College, I believe, in the early 2000s, 2005, perhaps. And so these, this photographic ex, ex, you know, exhibition, I think, sparked a lot of interest. And, you know, my searching on the web brought me to um, the archive as well, where I worked with them to, uh, you know, uh, create this book. So let's just uh, shift uh, a bit from uh, his story to talk a bit about style, right? Uh, You spent so much time uh, with these images and to anyone who may not have, you know, seen his photos yet, how would you describe uh, Robinson's style? Did he have any particular signature in terms of composition camera uh, choice, subject choice, or how he used lighting? Is there, is there a Robinson style? I think this is a very pertinent question. Um, I, I've seen a lot of images, uh, you know, that people take of New Orleans um, over the years, over the decades. And th- these were not snapshots. From the very beginning, Robinson knew what he wanted to capture. And I think that comes from being able to look through that viewfinder and frame that composition to be ready to pick up that camera when you see something in front of you and capture that image. And he had a gift for that. He was, he was a very good photographer. His images are very sophisticated. They're um, odd in a way. They're not just a, a, a little snapshot that you would just, you know, snap of someone on the street. They're, engaging with him usually and he's part of the scene you know he um it's it's almost like he's um uh, talking to them through the through the uh through the session or or uh, even on the street i mean and uh, uh, if he's on the street it's like he's a silent observer uh, observer there uh, watching uh things unfold in front of him i think he had a very sophisticated technique i think uh that's that's a a major part of being a great photographer is the way you frame and take those photographs. He uh, just had a very um, innate sensibility. I think he he was a very sensitive photographer, and I think that helped him as well to um, translate what he was seeing into into a photograph. As you mentioned, he left uh, over one hundred thousand negatives and. Uh, there are over a thousand images of New Orleans. Um, tell us a bit about your uh, selection process. How did you decide which photos to include in the book? Well, that's that's a that's a wonderfully interesting question because 
I remember my uh, remember sitting, uh, looking at images, just trying to figure out what should go into the book. And I thought to myself, the image has to be interesting. The image has to have a, a, a power to it. It has to be a powerful image to begin with. So quite honestly, a lot of the images, I didn't really know what they were when I first started looking at them. But uh, it was a process of discovery, especially like the old train terminal uh, downtown New Orleans. And and some of these um, images with um, people on the street um, and during uh, Mardi Gras at uh, Dixie's Bar of Music, which is which is a uh, an incredible uh, document uh, of that uh, uh, Mardi Gras itself in 1954. Um, I wanted I wanted to show New Orleans as much as possible. I wanted to show the French Quarter. I wanted to show the people who the artists, the people who were part of this subculture during that time, which in, uh, you know included Ella Brennan and Lee Bailey, who became famous in New York uh, for his cookbooks and restaurants and and uh, there were just so many people. Um, Robinson was at a very unique place in time. And let me explain that. He photographed these artists before they became famous in New Orleans. He photographed uh, uh, the Bornstein Gallery in New Orleans, which later became Preservation Hall. Um, he, he seemed to capture uh, and he photographed costumes on Mardi Gras Day uh, for example, Elmo Ave's uh, captured mermaid costume. Elmo Ave went on to form the first gay cruise. So you see the genesis of uh, gay carnival right there in these photographs. So this is before the first gay cruise came out in 1958. This is 1954. But Robinson was there to capture all of these mo- these seminal moments in history. It's it, it was very uh, exciting to make all of these discoveries when I was uh, putting together the plates for the book. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, Dixie's, and uh, we talk about that a little bit more in other interviews. But uh, before we we started recording, we were talking about how we wished that people would write about certain subjects we didn't have time to develop further in our books. And I'm just already uh, dreaming and uh, manifesting to see if anybody writes this. I really need to read Miss Dixie's biography. She's such a fascinating character. Well, she was um, more than just fat. She was fabulous. <laughs> more than fascinating. She um, was in a jazz band that toured during World War II. Um, and her sister uh, had a bar on St. Charles Avenue, but they moved it to the French Quarter she was a lesbian. She was a pioneering lesbian. Uh, and she made sure that her bar was open for especially gay men. They felt that it was a haven during the 50s. It was shut down for a moment. And I'll explain that in, I think it was 1953. The police shut down several bars. They wanted to get rid of them. But the outrage in the community in the French Quarter forced them to open Dixie's bar back up within 24 hours. It's, it's like she was part of the community. And, um, you know, she, uh, uh, one of her uh, pianists that played for her's name was Slo- uh, uh, Sloopy. So uh, Sloop. So there was, a, you know, Hang On Sloopy. That song was from Dixie's Bar of Music. I forget who did that, but uh, 
you know that song, Hang on Sloopy. So uh, she continued to be a major force in the French Quarter. She uh, made sure that her bar was open and um, uh, uh, gave gave a sort of um, uh, protection, but uh, also uh, allowed gay men to be uh, the, uh, the themselves at a time when the police were cracking down, like in the late fifties, for example. Yeah, and the, the images uh, of of that space are just incredible. So, a good part of the book you dedicated it's dedicated to the actual plates, right? We have, as you said, about a hundred images here, but you are also uh, providing context information about what we're looking at. Um, you're not just describing the images, you tell us what that is. And so you provide all this context. Uh, as you know, I'm a historian, so I'm curious about your research process. How did you find the, the information about the stuff that we're seeing in the images, oh, the, the places, the people? Well, some of it I knew. Um, I, I had known about, uh, there's a, a, a photograph of Elmo Ave's antique store on Royal Street. Uh, as I was looking at that at that plate, um, I didn't know what it was initially, but then I zoomed in on it, and I was, you know, flabbergasted that this was uh, where Elmo Ave had his antique store. He was one of the movers and shakers of gay carnival in New Orleans, and um, so it's just, you know, you you have to take time with the with the images. Uh, um, the image of, uh, like I said, the uh, train station, which is not there anymore. I knew that it was uh, a train station. I passed uh, a lot of these images to friends in New Orleans, and they helped me to identify um, places and people. Um, it's it's just uh, part of uh, historical research. You just you keep looking, you keep delving. Uh, it's not an easy process. Um, some people uh, were identified, uh, and I could I could locate them in different photographs like uh, Margaret Williams. Uh, she's she's actually in Miss Dixie's uh, on that Mardi Gras day. Uh, and, and you just keep looking and, and, and putting it together. Um, I especially liked um, uh, some of the, the Canal Street photographs uh, that showed uh, movie billboards and, and things like that. It's, it's interesting to kind of Go back in time, looking at newspaper articles, those kind of things help you to identify things. So it it's a long process, but one has to be you have to be patient, I think, too, and keep looking, keep keep uh, uh, evaluating what you're seeing to discover what's in there. Luckily, I have you know I I know New Orleans pretty well, so that that helped me uh, immensely in the in in that project. You also interviewed some folks, right? Um, uh, can you talk about that as well? And who did you talk to? How did you find them? Or... Well, um, I did. I interviewed a lot of people. Um, uh, uh, quite honestly, the archive helped. Uh, the Jack Robinson archive helped a lot. They had identified some of the people in the photographs. And um, Dan Oppenheimer's daughter, Emily, since we had worked together uh, on the carnival book, you know, she helped me um, select some of the, some of those. Uh, there weren't a lot, just a few of the images for the uh, so uh, for the unveiling the muse. So she actually came down to the book launch at the historic New Orleans collection for the carnival book. So I got to meet her, and she was just um, uh, she had a lot of energy. She was very uh, 
very uh, uh, keen to publish anything on Jack Robinson. So when uh, I had scheduled some interviews with uh, let's uh, with several artists, J- uh, George Dunbar, uh, Gene Seidenberg, I asked Emily to come along with me to uh, help interview them. And it really was a wonderful connection with the archive being present, talking to these artists who had been part of the uh, Bohemian, the Dixie Bohemians in the French Quarter. Uh, I interviewed her father. I interviewed uh, uh, Ella Brennan and her daughter T. Uh, as many people as I could, uh, 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 even um, Leonard Parrish. Uh, a lot of people over the phone who were, you know, quite. Um, you know, quite the uh, seniors, <laughs> and weren't I? Wa- I wasn't able to see them in person, but we talked on the phone, and um, I, and I I had known Miss Dixie um, when I lived in New Orleans. She uh, actually retired and lived on Bourbon Street. I did, you know, she was passed away before uh, she had passed away before this uh, project, but I did have some encounters with her, so I, I kind of knew her uh, in that sense. Um, uh, a lot of the people were gone. Um, but um, it, it, the people that I talked to were very, uh, very important uh, for the uh, for the book. Yes. Uh, as an oral historian, I really appreciated hearing people's stories. At the end of the book, you, we have an appendix uh, that's called "A Brief History of Photography in New Orleans," and I think that would also be a really interesting book by itself. That brings me to our closing question that I always like to ask you. What are you working on next? And I I know that you've been researching another great New Orleans photographer. Could you share some of your new projects with us? Well, while I was working on uh, the Jack Robinson book, I discovered that uh, George Duro's archive was uh, in New Orleans at the Historic New Orleans Collection. And as I was, you know, doing research for Jack Robinson, I also looked at this archive and I thought, there's a lot of unpublished work here. So uh, uh, I presented this to my publisher. And of course, it's always about context. And I, I we had been talking um, quite a bit about the art scene in New Orleans during the 1980s. And how important it was, and how this was like the uh, the the height of George Duro's artistic uh, work. And so I started researching. You know, and I, I lived I lived the art scene in New Orleans in the eighties. I participated in it, so it was really interesting to revisit that time period. And what I discovered was a very unique art community and artworks from that period, you know, it, but the main focus is on George Duroux for sure in his photography. There are two b- books already uh, published on Duroux's photography, um, but what I would like to present is something other than uh, what's uh, what's been presented before with commentary, with context. So, um, yes, I've been working on this for about five years now, so hopefully this will be the last year. <laughs> And I well, I can't wait uh, to see that one. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be great and gorgeous as the, your uh, other photography books and a lot of unpublished images, definitely. Yes, yeah. and and I'm sure I will learn a lot from them as I have from the, uh, the other books. And I hope you'll come back again to talk to us about it. 
you know, let's get the book published first. <laughs> That's the first thing. I, I know how that, that goes. Howard, right, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in uh, to this episode. I just spoke with Howard Philip Smith about A Sojourn in Paradise, Jack Robinson in 1950s New Orleans, which was published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado. Until next time.